Well, hello, everyone. It is a joy to welcome you once again to our weekly teaching time. April has passed away. We are now entering into the month of May. We still don't have a good idea of when we'll be able to gather together again as a congregation. But in the meantime, we've divided up the congregation into smaller groups who are given the opportunity to meet together through the video conferencing app called Zoom. And if you would like to participate in that and have not yet been contacted about that, please contact me and I will make sure that you get caught up and get into a group as soon as possible. So most groups will be meeting this Sunday after this message has been heard. So hopefully you will enjoy this and uh, get a lot of discussion out of it and make good application to your life. Well, we come to the last letter that is written to the churches in Revelation. These churches in Asia Minor, this last church is probably the most famous or perhaps the most infamous of the seven, that is the church at Laodicea. This letter to the church at Laodicea also contains what would be the most often quoted verse that would likely come out of these seven letters, and that is Revelation 3.20, where Jesus stands and says, Behold, I knock at the door. If anyone opens the door, then I will come in. So we will look at that in just a few moments. But let's take a look here at Revelation 3.14-22 and see what God's Word says to us today. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down on, sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're going to follow a fairly familiar outline from what we've looked at over the last, last several weeks. One of the challenges in this letter, I believe, is this, that this is written to the church at Laodicea, but there's widespread debate as to whether or not the church at Laodicea was made up primarily of lost people, as there is no mention of a remnant, or if these were people who were just not walking with the Lord. I think as we go through this, we'll be able to make application for both of these possibilities, but we're going to look first of all in this familiar outline at number one, the messenger. Verse 14, again, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. So as always, this letter is written to the angel, which would be the pastor or the elder or the elders, whomever is given the spiritual responsibility over the church, and that is to whom the letter is written to, but it is written by 
as we will see here, the messenger, that is the person of Jesus Christ. And in this, Jesus uses three words or phrases that give some description about who he is. And as always, the description that Jesus uses is designed to speak directly to the heart of the matter for the specific church that is going to receive this letter and for the church today that would read this some 2,000 years after it was initially penned. So the first way that we see this messenger presented to us is, number one, the amen or the truth. Now, as always, these descriptions about the messenger give an indication of the character of Christ and or his work, and we're going to find that to be true in these as well. So this title, the Amen, is used only here in Scripture. It's an incredibly rich phrase in its meaning, and it speaks both of his character and of his work. Now, the word Amen is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word for truth, or affirmation or certainty, that Hebrew word could be used in either of those instances. It is used in Scripture to affirm the truthfulness of a statement. For example, we find in Nehemiah 8, 6, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And so we see here this affirmation, this certainty about truth, about what was said as the nation of Israel said, Amen, Amen, to Ezra's blessing of the Lord and also the content of that blessing. Now, in the New Testament, that word Amen would be used in the New King James or the King James as verily or in other translations as truly. And so whenever you hear Jesus say verily, verily, or truly, truly, not only is it solemn, but it is also truthful what Jesus is going to say. In the New Testament, that word truly or verily has the same meaning as the Old Testament word for amen. Now, oftentimes in the church today, we hear someone say something that is true, and the congregation would affirm that truth by saying amen. And so that is the idea that in this sense of Jesus being the amen, he is the truth. But this also speaks of the work of Christ. Now, as we think about how this, is, how this word is used in the Old Testament, it is always looking forward to the truth about what God has said. It is all of the Old Testament promises as it relates to the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the loving kindness of God, the grace of God, the hope of an eternity with God. All of this is summarized in the work of Christ, and it is realized in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. For example, we would read in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many as are the promises of God, and they are numerous, in him, in Jesus, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. So not only is Jesus the truth, but Jesus, Jesus' work encapsulates all of the truth of God. The message of redemption 
It is the gospel message in the life and death and burial and resurrection of Christ. It is our future glory. It is our eternal destination. All of the promises about who God is, all of the promises about what God will do, are realized in the Amen, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, Jesus describes himself as the true and faithful witness, and that means the testifier. This is a further explanation of what it means for Jesus to be the Amen or the truth. Now, usually, when we hear or we use the word witness, we think of it in a court proceeding or in some kind of a legal arrangement where someone is going to come in and they are going to describe what they saw. Now, when a witness comes to the stand to give their testimony, they may prove to be untruthful or they may be, they may be unreliable. But Jesus is neither of these. He's not untruthful. He is not unreliable. Everything Jesus says is completely truth. It is perfectly trustworthy. It is entirely reliable. There is no error in anything that Jesus has ever said. Now, while this is very clearly true of Jesus' teaching as recorded for us in the New Testament, it is especially important because what Jesus is about to say to the church at Laodicea is undergirded by who he is as the truth and the fact that all that he says is faithful and true. That brings us now to the third description of the messenger, and that is the beginning of creation. He is the source. Now, the latter part of verse 14 says the beginning of the creation of God. Unfortunately, some have used this verse to teach that Jesus is saying that he was the first created being. This idea, this teaching, is rooted in what is called Gnosticism, and it taught that Jesus was one of several emanations that came from God. Gnostics claim to have a secret higher knowledge, higher spiritual knowledge, above and beyond the simple teaching of Scripture. Now, in our day, we need to be especially careful that when we hear someone speak or teach or we read something that one has written, that if they claim to have some kind of a special revelation, some kind of secret knowledge that most others don't have, while they may not be Gnostic in their doctrine, they are certainly being Gnostic in their application because they're claiming to have a special, secret, higher spiritual knowledge than what Scripture clearly and very simply teaches. Now, the church at Laodicea was not very far from the church at Colossae, and it is likely that both of these churches were plagued by this same form of Gnosticism, this false doctrine that taught that Jesus was a created being. For example, in Colossians 4.16, we read this, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your, for your part, read my letter that is coming, from Laodicea. Now, we don't have that letter that was written by Paul to the church at Laodicea, but there's a reason why Paul wanted the church at Laodicea to read the letter that he was writing to the church at Colossae, because in this letter, 
Paul is very specifically addressing the form of Gnosticism that was running rampant within that congregation. Now, the word beginning means the origin or the source of. It does not speak of something that is chronologically created. It means that Jesus is the beginning of creation. He is the source of creation. And so Paul would, read, would write in Colossians 1, 15 to 17, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, a position of preeminence indicating that he was before all creation. He goes on to say in verses 16 and 17 that for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul wanted to address the Gnosticism that was in the church at Colossae, and he wanted the church at Laodicea to read the letter written to Colossae so that he could also address the same problem that was taking place there, this secret higher spiritual knowledge that some claim to have, and as a part of that, Christ was a part of creation, not the source or the origin of creation. So Jesus as the Amen, the truth. Jesus as the true and faithful witness, the testifier. The affirmation, the certainty of all the promises of God. The beginning, the source of creation. We summarize that, we put it all together, and it means this, that Jesus is the sovereign God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus uses how he describes himself very particularly and very specifically. And here he clearly puts forth the idea that he is the sovereign God. He has the ultimate authority to exercise his power over the world that he created as he sees fit. He has the power to hold his creation accountable. He has the right to reward and punish based upon the omniscience of the deeds that he sees. Because of who he is, because of the testimony that he gives, he has the authority to reward and punish as he sees fit. Now, it's important for us to remember, as it would be for the church at Laodicea, is that our impression of what is being said is directly affected by the character of the one who is speaking. Go backwards now to what we talked about, about being in a court of law. When an inmate is called to the stand to testify against someone on trial or against another inmate, oftentimes their testimony is, is, taught, is brought with very great suspicion because there isn't certainty about the credibility or the trustworthiness of the testimony that they are about to give. Jesus erases all of that concern by presenting himself to his church as the Amen, the true and faithful witness, the beginning of all creation. Now, as we move on in our outline, it's worth noting here that there is no commendation for the church at Laodicea. This is only the second church for which there is no commendation. Jesus looks at them, and he looks at all that they have done and all that they are, and he finds nothing worthy 
of a word of affirmation. I don't know that there could be a more scathing rebuke from the Lord to look at the body of work, to look at the spiritual state of the individuals that make up that church and then not find any word of affirmation. Well, this brings us to number two in our outline, and that is his rebuke. He says in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Now, the word deeds always means works. As we think about what that looks like and about what that means for our lives, what we reveal, excuse me, what we do reveals who we are. And who we are is exposed by what we do. This is why Jesus says that you will know their fruit by their deeds. We know the condition of people by the things that they do. This body of work, these deeds that we do, is an indication of our true spiritual state. What we do will reveal how mature in the Lord we are. What we do will reveal how committed to the Lord we are. What we do will reveal how profound an impact our salvation has had on us. The condition that Jesus finds in the church of Laodicea is one of uselessness. He looks at their deeds, and by virtue of that, he looks at their spiritual condition. They are useless for God's plans and God's purposes. All that they have done, all that they are doing, amounts to a big pile of nothing. There is no value in the plans and purposes of God. Now, the omniscient Lord knows their spiritual condition. He says that you are neither hot nor cold. Now, this is introduced here as metaphorical language, and it speaks directly to the water supply that was found in the church at Laodicea. Now, this is why we are so blessed by the work of scholars and theologians who know the culture and they know the, uh, the, the region, they know the area, they know the practices, and they can help unearth some of these things so that we will have a better and a more clear understanding of what is being said. So when Jesus talks about them not being hot or cold, He's talking about the water supply, and he's doing this metaphorically. Now, what we would not be aware of, apart from those that have studied the area back in the first century, is this. Nearby was the city of Hierapolis, and in Hierapolis there were numerous hot water springs that were filled with minerals, and oftentimes people would go to these hot springs, and they would sit in them, and they would find some soothing benefit, perhaps even some healing from whatever their aches and pains might be, kind of like what you and I would do in a modern-day hot tub. It makes our muscles relax, and we feel soothed and relaxed by being in a hot tub. Well, this water, these hot water springs in Hierapolis, would have to travel several miles through an underground aqueduct, and as that water traveled from Hierapolis to Laodicea, it would lose its temperature, and it would begin to get warm, it would pick up the smelly odors of the aqueduct. It would be dirty by the debris that was in the aqueduct. And by the time it got to Laodicea, it was foul, it was warm, and it was dirty. 
It was not hot enough to relax in, and the mineral content was of no value, and so there was a uselessness of the intended hot water that would come into Laodicea from the city of Hierapolis. Now, also nearby to Laodicea, as already was mentioned, was the church at Colossae. Colossae had a number of cold, freshwater springs that were tasty to drink, and they would bring refreshment to people when they were hot and thirsty. And so in verse 15, Jesus says, I wish that you were cold or hot. And this is not a contrast between their spiritual fervor for the Lord and their staunch opposition to the Lord. But what he is saying is this, I wish that your spiritual condition was good for something like the hot water springs in Hierapolis and like the cool water streams in Colossae. Now, I don't know why Jesus didn't say that specifically, but by all accounts, that is the implication of what, it, of what Jesus means in this metaphorical language about being hot or cold. Now, as we make a spiritual application of this spiritual condition of hot or cold to those that are on fire for the Lord and to those that reject the Lord, the truth is this, the lukewarm fit into neither category. They are not on fire for the Lord and they are not staunchly opposed to the Lord like a modern day atheist would be. The truth is, they may not even be saved. They're not opposed to the gospel message, but neither are they affected by the gospel message. So they attend church and they claim to know the Lord, but like the Pharisees, they are content to practice a self-righteous religion, neither hot nor cold, but riding the fence, if you will, and being lukewarm. The result of this spiritual position of uselessness is this. God is disgusted. He says in verse 16, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Their uselessness is unacceptable to God. He says, I will, which means I am ready to, I am about to. It has a feeling of imminence, like it's just about to happen. Not at some point in the future, but I am ready to come because I find your spiritual condition disgusting to me. Some churches make God weep. Some churches make God angry. But apparently this church makes God sick. God says that I will spit you or I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, there's two reasons that you and I might vomit. The first is this. We're sick. We have an illness of some kind. We have a stomach bug, and we cannot hold any food down. The second reason that someone would vomit is that they have eaten something that is absolutely disgusting. I remember a show that was popular some years ago called Fear Factor, and almost always in one of the episode, in the episodes, somebody or this group of people would be asked to eat a mixture of the most disgusting thing you could ever imagine in your life. Animal parts that we would never even want to touch, let alone put in our mouth. And invariably, these contestants, once these things got into their mouth, would be so 
repulsed by it that they would vomit and spit it out of their mouth. Well, God is not sick. God has no illness, so we're left with this. God is disgusted with the taste of their spiritual condition and the fact that they are useless to His plans and His purposes. And the cause of this distaste is self-sufficiency. Now we see this expressed to us in verse 17, the beginning part 17a, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. So the church at Laodicea had a very false sense of security, a very false sense of stability. They had a very strong self of being satisfied physically and because they were so satisfied physically and their estimation, they had no need for anything spiritually. God to them was little more than an acquaintance. Perhaps God was nothing more than something or someone that they may cry out to at a point of an emergency in their life. He's not the source of their life. He's not the source of their strength. The Lord is not directing them, and they certainly aren't interested in following Him. They are completely satisfied with themselves, and they are living a life of self-sufficiency. Now, the truth about the church at Laodicea is that they are spiritually bankrupt. Despite their own self-assessment, Jesus declares that they are spiritually bankrupt. Verse 17b, You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now he's not describing physical characteristics, but he is describing their spiritual condition. Now Laodicea was a very affluent city. There weren't people who were without clothing. There weren't people who were poor. There weren't people who were wretched. They were people who were wealthy. They were well taken care of physically. And the result of that is that they were spiritually bankrupt. He says, you do not know that you have been deceived. They have the best of what the world had to offer, but spiritually they were broke And they didn't even know it. That word know here means to perceive. In their own perception, they could not recognize that they were spiritually bankrupt. So there's two ways that we can apply this to our lives today as we can look back on the church at Laodicea. The first way that we can apply it is this. They think that they're saved and they are not. Now there's... There's ammunition to be able to come to that conclusion. Now, this is a sober warning to the nominally committed pew-sitter that fills the church today. Those that come to hear something encouraging, that come to network within the congregation, to come to make that spiritual checklist off of their day. They think they're saved and they're not Matthew 7:21 to 23 Jesus addresses the spiritual condition of the Pharisees and I believe of many within the modern church today not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter 
Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. What a tragedy to think that our churches are filled with people who don't know the Lord. That there are people who are going to stand before the Lord and they are going to boast about the miracles or the healings or the casting out of demons that they performed. And Jesus is going to look at them and say, I never knew you. You practiced, you lived a life of sin. Your deeds were useless to me. The second option in how we can apply this not only to ourselves but to the church in Laodicea is they think they're pleasing God and they are not. As the church at Laodicea, this self-sufficient group of people looks at themselves, they do so with this smug pride at all of the physical blessing that they have of all the toys and of all the material things. They look at these things and they conclude that because I am pleased with myself, then God must also be pleased with me. Is that the way we look at it? Are we the standard? Are we the ones who determine God's pleasure in the lives that we live? Uh, Popular author J.R. Stott says this, perhaps... None of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have a lukewarm bath of religion. I believe he's very accurate in that. And sadly, it appears that this condition of the modern church is only getting worse because people don't want to contend with their sin, with the true spiritual condition that they own. They want to hear what they want to hear, and they're going to go to the places that will tell them those things. And so they have been deceived of their true spiritual condition, and they either think they're saved and they are not, or they think they live a life that pleases God, and they don't. In contrast to their own personal evaluation of being rich, and wealthy and in need of nothing, we see the assessment that comes from the Amen, the true and faithful witness, the beginning of all creation. He says that you are spiritually wretched, a result of their self-righteousness. He says you are spiritually miserable, a result of their self-sufficiency. He says that they are spiritually poor, a result of of the pride that they have in their physical wealth. He says that you are spiritually blind, a result of self-deception of their true spiritual condition. He says they're spiritually naked, a result of clothing themselves with themselves, as opposed to clothing themselves of something that stands the scrutiny of the true and faithful witness. These are very challenging words that come from the Lord Jesus himself. 
And it's a word that we need to be very serious about in our own lives today. Now, number three, in our outline, we see his instruction. This begins in verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So the gracious, patient, loving God gives to them instruction because he says, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. And so in this instruction, there's three things that they are are instructed to buy, and that's not a literal purchasing, it's metaphorical. And then there's one thing that they are to do. So these three things that they are to buy are directly related to the areas they believe that no need exists Each of these speak in some form or fashion about their need for true redemption or their need for true spiritual appraisal. So the first thing that Jesus mentions is they are to buy gold. And this represents salvation. Verse 18a, buy for yourselves gold refined by fire so that you can become rich. Now, Don't be misunderstood about this. Jesus is not saying that you can buy salvation. But Laodicea was the banking center of the area. And because of that, and because gold was the major commodity of the day, they were often buying for themselves and exchanging within themselves gold as a form of of currency. So within Laodicea, there was tremendous physical wealth. But despite that, they were spiritually Poor. Gold that is refined by fire is free from any impurity, and this represents the priceless riches that are found in our salvation. For example, in 1 Peter 1.7, Peter says, So that the proof of your faith, or your salvation, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, he gives this instruction to buy gold. So the question is this, how does one buy the gold that is necessary in order to secure salvation? Well, it's very simple. It is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith and the not of ourselves. It is the gift of God and not by works so that no one may boast. So they are to buy for themselves by faith gold, this salvation, so that they have a leg to stand on when their time to meet their maker comes. Now the second thing they are instructed to buy is they are to buy white garments. And these white garments reflect righteousness. Verse 18b, And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. Now the city of Laodicea was famous for their black wool. And from this black wool, they would make the most incredible and the most expensive garments within the region. They were often clothed with the finest garments that man had to offer. And yet Jesus says that you need white garments with which to clothe yourself so that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. Now, nakedness always reflects 
humility, or excuse me, being humiliated and shame. And so even though they have the finest garments a man has to offer, they are, they are naked and they, their shame will be revealed. And so they need to clothe themselves with these white garments. So they needed these white garments, which can only be understood as spiritual righteousness, spiritual righteousness, which is referenced repeatedly in the book of Revelation as the righteousness of Christ. We have no righteousness of our own. And so when you and I are saved, we put on, it is impugned to us, the righteousness of Christ, and then we are charged with the responsibility to live a life of righteousness that reflects the very righteousness of Christ. So how does one buy these white garments that will cover the shame of spiritual nakedness and the the depravity of our spiritual condition? Well, it is by faith in the finished work of Christ. You can't go anywhere and buy the righteousness of Christ to cover the truth of our spiritual condition apart from are being joined with Christ. Now, the third thing that they are instructed to buy is ISAV. This ISAV reflects discernment. Verse 18c, an ISAV to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, Laodicea was known for a medical facility that had developed this ISAV that would help with some of the the eye or the sight problems that were prominent in the first century. We don't know what they were. We don't know what the salve was. We don't know how it worked. But this was a huge blessing in such a deprived medical era as first century Christianity. So Laodicea was known for this eye salve, and the people of the church of Laodicea would know exactly what that eye salve means. And so despite how good we think we see, despite how good we value our spiritual condition, the instruction is that we are to buy this ISAV, this spiritual discernment, so that we can have a true spiritual assessment of ourselves. The church at Laodicea were deceived in their own spiritual assessment. They saw the best of what the world had to offer, and Jesus saw poor wretched, miserably, spiritually broke people. Our spiritual condition is versed out for us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10-12, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Despite how we appraise ourselves, the reality is, outside of our union with Christ, we are wretched, we are poor, and we are dead in a spiritual condition that is separated from God for all of eternity. So where are we to get this ISAV? How is it that we are to get this discernment that helps us to be able to understand? Well, I believe you do this by gazing at the cross by recognizing what the work of the cross means and why it was so necessary for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. So we see these three things they needed to buy. Gold for salvation, white garments for their righteousness, eyesalve for their spiritual discernment. Now we come to the fourth thing, the one thing they are instructed to do, and that is to repent. Verse 19 says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. God loves the lost, and God loves those that have lost their way. He disciplines us to bring us to an understanding of our need for salvation. And he reproves us for our continued spiritual growth. God is graciously allowing this church at Laodicea to recognize his voice, to hear his voice, and the call is to repent. We are to turn to him either to be saved or we turn to him to be renewed in our spiritual commitment to make him the Lord of our life. Now, the difference between the lost and the saved, the difference between those who are spiritually on fire for the Lord and those who are spiritually lukewarm for the Lord is the matter of repentance. When you and I don't see a need for repentance, we're in trouble. When we can't identify sin in our life that we know is displeasing to the Lord, we risk the reality that we are deceiving ourselves and we are not exercising true spiritual discernment in the holiness and the righteousness and the majesty of God and how far we are away from that standard. Well, in verse 20 we read this invitation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And so there's two ways that we can apply this verse. Letter A, it's an invitation for salvation. To those who may be inside the church and after they have heard from the messenger, they recognize that the Savior is knocking. And as they hear that knock and as they recognize their need, they open the door. Think about this. How much of a shock is it that Jesus would stand outside the door of his own church, the door of the church that he died for, and knock in order to gain entrance, as if he wasn't really welcomed? The second way that we can understand this letter B is that it's an invitation for renewal. It is to open up the door of our lives again to the Savior, to allow Him His rightful place on the throne of our life. It is to recognize our waywardness and our sinfulness. It is to recommit ourselves, to resubmit ourselves to Him as not only our Savior, but our Lord. So I believe it's, the, it's, it's amazing that the God of this universe seeks us. He pursues us. He desires us. He wants to commune with us. He wants to spend time with us. And regardless of our spiritual condition, He stands at the door and says, Here I am. Will you let me in? Does it amaze you that our Father would pursue us that way? Well, if we will respond, if we will open that door, we have this guarantee that he is going to come in. It is a promise of his personal presence 
of this intimate union. It is this promise to be able to know His grace. It is to know His peace. It is to be acquainted with His love. It is to be the benefactor of the rest that He provides. It is to know the purposes that come from Him for our lives. It is to be filled with an unquenchable joy, regardless of our physical circumstances. Well, we come to the last part here, number four in our outline, and that is His promise. Verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. So this message, this promise is given to the one that overcomes, to the one that is faithful, to the one that is the true believer, and the promise is this, we will reign with him. It says that we will sit down at his throne with him, And there's a lot of mystery about what heaven's going to be like. But there is this promise of a future position of service and how we will reign with the Lord in His eternal kingdom. I can't tell you what that's going to look like. But I can tell you this, it's going to be unimaginable that the God of this universe is going to allow us to sit with Him at His throne and have some reign, some rule, some responsibility, some blessing of service to him in his eternal kingdom. Now, the, the, the final verse, verse 22, ends as all of these letters have. To him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this, there is this appeal. This appeal comes from Christ himself to listen with spiritual ears what it is I have to say, and this message is given to all the churches, not just Laodicea, but every church, every Christian that has read these letters, it is the same appeal from the same God. As we conclude our time in the book of Revelation and these letters to these seven churches, I want to remind you, that these seven churches are literal historical churches, but they are also representative of modern-day churches, and they are also representative of individuals that exist within the modern church. As God evaluates, as God gives assessment to our spiritual condition, does he find this uselessness that he rebukes the church at Laodicea for? Or does he find this rich faithfulness as he has commended other churches for? You know, we don't live this Christian life alone. We live it in the shadow of the Almighty with the promise of the indwelling Spirit to lead and guide and to comfort and direct us everywhere that we go. And we either participate in that or we keep it at arm's length and perhaps even reject it. But the Amen, the true and faithful witness, the beginning of all creation speaks to him who has an ear. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we give you thanks that you are a God of mercy and grace. We give you thanks that you are faithful in all that you say and in all that you do. We thank you that you are completely and entirely righteous. We thank you that you love and you reprove. We thank you that you heal and you restore. And I pray, Father, that your word would speak to every heart and every life and that it would 
complete your intended purpose as each of us grapple with the reality of what it is you say to us through your eternal, infallible, and inerrant word. May you bless our lives as we seek to align ourselves with who you are and what you do. We thank you that you're patient with us as we fail and as we fumble. We pray to be empowered to live a life of peace and joy because of this intimate union that we have with you, ever growing in our walk. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.